Wait a minute. Sergio's going to let me know. I think we're on. Go ahead and start. Psalm 119, verse 9. Yeah, that house, tenth floor, family, house. And uh, it starts with 9. How can a young man keep his way pure by living according to your word? I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees with my lips. I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. I will not neglect your word. That's what we should all say to ourselves every day. I will not neglect your word. Okay, we got one prayer request in particular today. Sean, he lives just down the road here in Florida. He's got some real health problems, and some of them stem from the house problems. He got mold into the house through a bad air conditioning system. The house is having all kinds of problems because of that, and then the insurance isn't helping, and he is beside himself. He's got health problems, house problems, and insurance problems, all from the same problem, and uh, so... We want to keep Sean in prayer. I, you know, I don't think he's ever asked for prayers before. <laughs> he's always telling me, you know, I've got this problem and that, and but we need to have him in prayer. So we'll do that. And uh, then we got a visitor walked in just a few minutes ago from Delaware, Russell Hankel. Couldn't believe it. Just walked in and uh, you know, didn't even know he was coming. And uh, if he has time, he says he'll be with us on mission work on Saturday morning, which is a good job. And if you can't make it, don't sweat it. We, it's just one of those things. We go out and walk around and pray with people. And, you know, it's, it is a wonderful time. And you'll go oh, almost always come away more blessed than, than uh, whatever we do for them. That's for sure. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for uh, the chance to come into your presence and to pray for Sean and for anybody else that's out there that's having difficulties or pains or trials. And it's been kind of a, a quiet week with prayer requests, but... Um, we know that people do have needs, and there are a lot of people that uh, have needs that didn't ask for specific prayers, but you know that they do. And search those people out, search us out, and uh, just attend to us, Lord. We're in great need all the time, and uh, as is our nation, as is this world, there's a lot of needs on all kinds of fronts that uh, we would just ask that you would be attentive to. And we know that things are not going to get better in this world. It's, uh, the book is written, and uh, we know what's coming, but... Uh, Give us the ability to be patient through these times and to keep our eyes fixed on you more and more every day so that when the times do come to uh, the point where things go south, we'll have our hearts and our minds and our attitudes in the right place. And Lord, we ask that you bless this class and anything that is said that is uh, incorrect, I would ask that you would alert us to it so that we would uh, not teach something wrong and that you would keep people from anything that is wrong doctrine. And at the same time, we would certainly pray that that's not the case and that what's being taught is correct. But only you know that for sure. We're doing the best we can here, and we would pray that it would be to your glory. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, let's see. Sergio and Rode are going to be a little bit late. He's been doing a project, and he forgot his time until three minutes ago. So they'll, they'll, they'll be a little late. But they will be leaving. Tomorrow's their last day here. they got a lot to do before they go. So... Make sure you say goodbye tonight, and then we'll hopefully see them in, you know, eight months or so back here in Sarasota. But the Lord will have to provide that one, and we'll just wait and see how it goes. 
And then today is the 14th of January. <clears throat> Four years he labored without results. It says, God gave Dr. Walter L. Wilson, a Kansas City physician, a deep love for the scriptures. After his conversion in 1896, Wilson diligently studied the Bible and applied himself to doing everything he found in God's word. Yet it bothered him that his life did not seem to bear spiritual fruit. But others reassured him not to look for results, but only to be busy at seed sowing. So Wilson pressed on in his work as a physician and a lay preacher. Then in 1913, a missionary from France visiting in his home challenged him with the question, what is the Holy Spirit to you? No stranger to theology, Wilson said he is one of the persons of the Godhead, a teacher, a guide, the third person of the Trinity. He is just as great, the missionary said, just as precious, just as needful as the other two persons of the Trinity. But still, you have not answered my question. What is he to you? He's nothing to me, Wilson said, surprised at his own candor. I have no contact with him, no personal relationship, and could get along quite well without him. Oh my. Yeah, his visitor replied, it is because of this that your life is so fruitless, even though your efforts are so great. If you will seek personally to know the Holy Spirit, he will transform your life. The missionary's words haunted Wilson into the next year. He wanted to bear the fruit of the Spirit, but feared becoming a fanatic giving an inferior place to Jesus Christ by overly exalting the Holy Spirit. A trusted Christian friend reassured him from the Bible that only by the Holy Spirit could Christ be made known to him and others. Then on the evening of January 14, 1914, everything changed. Wilson heard Dr. James Gray, later the president of Moody Bible Institute, preach a sermon on Romans 12:1. Gray asked, have you noticed that this verse does not tell us to whom we should give our bodies? It is not the Lord Jesus. He has his own body. It is not God the Father. He remains upon his throne. Another has come to earth without a body. God gives you the privilege and the indescribable honor of presenting your bodies to the Holy Spirit to be his dwelling place on earth. Wilson later reported that he said to the Holy Spirit, My Lord, I have mistreated you all my Christian life. I have treated you like a servant. I shall do so no more. Just now I give you this body of mine from my head to my feet. I give you my hands, my limbs, my eyes, my lips, my brain, all that I am within and without. I hand over to you for you to live in it in the life that you please. You may send this body to Africa or lay it on a bed with cancer. It is your body from this moment on. Help yourself to it. Thank you, my Lord. I believe you have accepted it. For in Romans 12, 1, you said acceptable unto God. The next morning, two women came to his office, as they had done before, selling advertising. Although he had never spoken to them about Christ before, that day he did. And both put their trust in him that morning. This was only the beginning of how mightily God used Dr. Walter Wilson. He went on to pastor Central Bible Church in Kansas City and co-founded and served as first president of Kansas City Bible College, now Calvary Bible College. Walter Wilson, the beloved physician, often testified, with regard to my own experience with the Holy Spirit, I may say the transformation in my own life took place on January 14, 1914, was greater, much greater than the change that took place when I was saved December 21, December 21, 1896. What is your reaction to the story of Dr. Walter Wilson? Do you agree with Dr. Gray's sermon? Have you ever specifically given your body to God as a living sacrifice? God may use you in surprising ways, just as he did Dr. Wilson.
And Romans 12, 1, Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that he will accept when you think of what he has done for you. Is this too much to ask? Yes. That husband, uh, whatever his name was. Tom. Tom went to that Kansas City. Oh, did he? Uh, yes. Yeah, he was fluent in Greek. I don't know about Hebrew, but I knew, know he was... Uh, Oh, okay. Yeah, he was a nice guy. Yeah. I kind of met him after he had, what was it, a stroke? Yeah. Yeah, and he couldn't talk very well, but he was always on fire for the Lord. He just, he couldn't say much, but you knew he was vibrating with, with the Lord. So, good stuff. Um, okay, let's see here. We have, uh, I guess we have study to get into, don't we? We're in uh, Galatians 5, verse 13, but I'm sure there's probably some earlier verse you can go to well, to give us some context. Like review what we did last week. We started the previous uh, paragraph. All right. It starts on 7. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? What, that kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In the case, in that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for the agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Mm -hmm. 13. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but not but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Okay. It's written differently, but it says the basic same thought. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use this liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Um, you know, you get people, they try to trap you, especially these Calvinists. And I have people email me and they'll, they'll say just, they'll, they'll, twist your thinking before they even get into what they're doing in order to uh, say, well, you're preaching license. In other words, you have um, uh, the what? You can do anything. You can do anything. That's what you're saying. And the Bible never says that, and I've never said that. But the fact is that you were saved by grace through faith. There's nothing else that you need to do in order to be saved. And in fact, uh, you cannot lose that salvation. And, you know, you'll just get these people, they're like trolls, and they'll just send you an email, and they'll, they'll set you up, and you can always tell it's coming. You know, what about this verse? And they act polite, and then the next thing you know, they'll, they'll say just almost mean, angry things about this. But all we have right here, it's very clear, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. You know, that's it's so simple, it's so basic, is that we are free. 100% entirely free from the law of Moses. If we're not, then what he said on the cross is completely wrong. When he said it's finished, it means that it's almost finished and we need to finish up the job for him. And that's not what he said. We are free from the law of Moses. We are not under law. There is no law that we are under because if we are under law, then what happens? What not if we violate the law, we will violate the law. What will happen? You're, that's right. Your imputed sin, um, the wages of sin is death, and therefore you lose your salvation again, and you never know if you're saved. It's very poor theology, but like I say, people, they can't let go of themselves. 
And that's the problem with all kinds of denominations out there. You get the uh, Arminians, they say you can lose your salvation, and you get the Calvinists that say that, that God regenerates you in order to believe, and then you believe, and then you're saved, and all of these crazy things. It all comes back to one thing, and one thing only, self. I am putting myself in it. Now, Calvinists will, Calvinists will say exactly the opposite. Well, no, it was holy uh, work of the Holy Spirit, and uh, you had no part in it, and our stand is much more honoring of God. If you think it through, though, it's not. It's exactly the opposite, because they're making a claim that they cannot make. They're saying that I am regenerated, I'm a saved person. Well, how do they know that? Because Jehovah's Witnesses say that they're saved, right? And we know that they're not. Mormons say that they're saved. Everybody comes at the, uh, you know, religion that they espouse, assuming that they are saved. And we can't make that assumption. The Bible has to lay it out for us. And the Bible says that if you believe in the Lord Jesus and what he says in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 3 and 4, if you believe that, you are saved. That is the qualification. It doesn't, anything else that Calvinism inserts or anything else that people add to it, like Arminianism, uh, John, you know, the Methodist Church and uh, the, uh, who is it? The, uh, Seven uh, the what? Seven well, no, there are, uh, I'm thinking of the people downtown with the, uh, the Mennonites. Oh. You know, they're all, they're from the Wesleyan camp, the Arminian camp, and they believe that you can lose your salvation. And that's, once again, it is contrary to what Scripture says. We are saved by grace through faith, and you can't lose it, okay? But, but, it says, do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. It's so clear, and this isn't the only time he says it. I mean, he says it, what, 8,932 times. Obviously, that's an uh, exaggeration, but hyperbole. it's, yeah, hyperbole. Um, anyway, so here's my comments that I typed up years ago, and we'll go with it. The, uh, I don't know. I, it's been so long, and I never go back and say, I'm going to read that this week. I just don't. We're almost done with this book. I mean, look at this. We've got a little more of chapter 5 and then chapter 6, and we'll be done maybe tonight. But, um, uh, well, you never know. <laughs> the word for is given as justification for the immensely strong words of the previous verse, where he said, I hope, as he said, you emasculate yourselves, or as this one says, they would even cut themselves off, um, not really giving the sense of what it means there, but anyway, um, he had said that those who are into cutting the flesh should go ahead and emasculate themselves, as the NIV says. For now, explain, um, for now explains that harshness, the word for. Unlike those Judaizers who stood again, can we help you, ma'am? That's Mrs. Garrett. Um, unlike those Judaizers who stood against the gospel, Paul is speaking to the Galatians as brethren. Anytime you see the word brethren, it is speaking of the fellowship of believers, okay? And that's an important thing to remember as you're reading the Bible. If he's saying brethren, he's speaking to them as saved believers. Paul never questions their salvation. Peter never questions their salvation. James, despite people misusing the book of James in that uh, context, never questions people's salvation. Jude does not either. None of them. John, none of them question a person's salvation. They assume that if a person is saved, they are saved. Okay, and then they go through all of the pains of saying why they need to get right with the Lord, why they need to be expelled from the congregation, but they always bring it back to the fact that they're saved and that the Lord will accept them, but they're going to go through their own troubles. Okay, same thing here. Unlike those Judaizers who stood against the gospel, Paul is speaking to the Galatians as brethren. They were saved by Christ and stood in a completely different relation to him than those false teachers. 
as they are his brothers, they have been, as he says, been called to liberty. The circumcising of the flesh is identification with the people of Israel. We talked about that last week, okay? And more, more especially, a willingness to adhere to the rights and customs of that people who were bound to the law. In the coming of Jesus Christ, that law was now fulfilled. But those of Israel who had rejected him spent their time not honoring God through Christ, but by boasting in the flesh. And they still do it to this day. Okay, that's just the way it is. If you're not in Christ, you're going to find some reason to boast about yourself before God. And even those, as we just said, those who are in Christ will find their reasons to boast before God. They always, it always comes back to yourself. Always. Just keep remembering, you have no part of anything. He gets the honor for everything that happens, and all he asks you to do is to believe. That doesn't mean that you've done a work. You know, people say, well, belief is a work, or they'll say that uh, confessing with your mouth is a work. None of those things are works. Those are things that the Bible expects you to do. If you believe in the Lord Jesus and you confess with your mouth, or if you believe in your heart that uh, whatever, uh, confess with your mouth that, uh, go ahead, Burke, I'm, I'm uh, uh, for... All right, let me just go back there and read it. Believe with your heart and confess with your mouth. Okay, I just don't want to say it wrong, and I get these things, my brain stops when I'm trying to quote a verse, unlike Burke, who knows the Bible back and forth. It says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confession with your mouth is not a work. That's one of the goofiest things that people come out with to try to say, I don't need to do what Paul has explicitly said for us to do. And then what do they do? They say, well, that applies to Jews because that's in Romans 10 and it's between 9 and 11, which is where Paul is speaking to the Jews only. No, he's speaking to everybody. He's just making a point about the Jews during those particular passages. It, it's very poor theology. But anyway, um, let's see here. In the coming of Christ, that law is now fulfilled by those of Israel who had rejected him. They spent their time not honoring God through Jesus Christ, but by boasting in the flesh. Paul has noted that this is bondage. The Galatians, however, were free from this bondage and set at liberty by Christ. Okay, the law is bondage. Liberty comes in Christ. That means grace. That means it's unmerited favor. We saw that, you know, I, I'm going to say it during the sermon on Sunday. Um, I made a note of it because it was so obvious. You know, I do these sermons and I'm, I'm studying all day and I get tired. And the last verse of the day is Moses. This is last week's sermon. Moses is speaking about um, the land that you're going to is not a land like Egypt where you have to uh, get your water by foot. And I explained three or four different ways that you could get it by foot. One might be getting a bucket and carrying it by foot. Another might be that you've got the Nile going down and you have to get a spade and you put your foot in the ground and you dig a canal over to your house and the water comes and waters your garden. Or a third way that some scholars believe is that they have their water by foot because they have uh, foot pumps and they still do that to this day in, in Egypt, okay? So watering by foot. And then he says, the land that you're going to is not like that at all. It's a land that drinks in the rains from the heavens. And so I, I did my analysis. I gave you all the important stuff that I thought was necessary for you to understand the passage. And right at the end of the sermon, after we took communion, Ray walks up and he says, it's works versus grace. And I said, what are you talking about? He says, your sermon, it's works versus grace. He says, they had to work for their water. God provides the water. He's making a, a picture of your life in Christ. And I was like, Duh! You know, I, I'm, I'm, how do you overlook something so is that, simple? Is that Reverend Ray? Yeah, Reverend that Ray, absolutely. I mean, it was just such a simple thing that he said, 
But it's exactly what right. he's trying to tell us, is that you were being given grace. And grace means that you are not working. You're not under law. Law is of works, Paul says, okay? So, you know, sometimes if you hear something like that, and I'm, I'm giving a sermon, don't be afraid to come up and tell me, because that is important. That's a, that's a major point of theology that was in a simple example. And like I said, I'm trying to get you information so you understand what the difference is like for you in your life, when in fact, there was something much more basic and simple and important to be you conveyed. Have thought, Ray, have a look for the pictures. Yeah, well, he was sitting here listening to what I had done, and so his mind has time to wander. I don't have that type of time, and so I just overlooked it. But you're right. I mean, that's exactly right. So anyway, it was a good point, and um, here we go. Um, uh, Paul noted that that is bondage to law. The Galatians, however, were free from this bondage and set at liberty by Christ. They didn't have to work for their water. The water came from the heavens, okay? But there are consequences. Remember the last thing I said after that. The rains are given by the Lord. It's joyful. It's wonderful. You don't have to work for it. But guess what? If they're given by the Lord, they can be taken away by the Lord, okay? That doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation. That's not the picture. Israel is still Israel, and they always were, and they always will be. But we have to understand that we are not at liberty to, as it says here, um, opportun do not give an opportunity for the flesh, okay? So at the same time as there is grace, there is also requirements that are on you. Once again, you're not going to lose your salvation if you don't meet those requirements, but you will lose your joy you certainly will lose the water, as we were talking about the Holy Spirit, that guy at the beginning of that. Spirit's not going to go and bless you if you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. It's not going to happen. You need to live in relation with the Spirit of God. You've got to live your life understanding that He is there and that you are His vehicle to reveal Himself to the people of the world. Okay, He's done it through His Word. He's spoken out the word to you, and that's one of the, probably the primary role of the Holy Spirit is to get us his word in a way that we can understand it. But we still have to pray to God in order to understand this word, to, to be able to convey it properly, to be able to do it in a way that expresses the joy of the Lord. All of these things are necessary, and they all involve the work of the Spirit. You brought up the Spirit. Uh, it's that, that, that article you read, too, about that day in uh, Christian history, it's like everyone's okay. Got the Father, got the Son, following Jesus, and the one who's the closest to us, right, is the Spirit. Right. Period. It's like you know, you, 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 if you want to touch God, it's going to be the Spirit. It's not going to be Jesus, at least not now, and it's certainly never going to be the Father. So nope. it's like you know, <laughs> He's dwelling in us. We're sealed with Him, and we're we need to rely on the Spirit. Yes, sir. Grieve. That's, that's a fact. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. That's exactly right. And we do it all the time. I mean, yeah. we, 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 through our actions, through our thoughts, through the things we do, we grieve the Holy Spirit. And that's why we need to continuously talk to the Lord. Paul says, I've said this, I know, in a couple classes recently, but he says to pray without ceasing. And that doesn't mean to just get on your knees all day long and fold your hands and close your eyes and do nothing else. It means you're living your life. You're driving down the road. You can pray to the Lord. Then you walk and take out the garbage at the mall on Tuesday morning. You can be talking to the Lord. That is what praying without ceasing means. It means to be intimately in contact with the Lord at all times. And the more you are, the more you will be. It's just like anything else. You know, if you if you are into drugs, the more drugs you take, the more drugs you are going to take. If you're into booze, the more booze you drink, the more you are going to drink. Whatever your priority in life is, if you love sports, 
you're going to get into sports more and more and it's going to be your consuming passion if you want to be closer to the lord then you need to be closer to the lord all the time and you need to constantly be in fellowship with him and that's just what that's just human nature that's not anything that's you know biblical or unbiblical it's just the way that we're constructed whatever we have our mind focused on that is what we are going to continue to do more and more and more okay so let's see here um these people the galatians they're set at liberty by christ they were no longer under the power of sin but are freed men in christ and because of this position they hold he next admonishes them saying only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. What is very easy to do when one has no law is to guide them, uh, no law to guide them is to fall into the lowest levels of depravity. And this is what people like to say. Well, if you don't have law and you're not uh, uh, under any bindings in the new covenant, then of course you are going to fall away and you're going to fall into this. That's not true. That does not logically follow. And that's where the error in thinking is. What logically follows is where you put your mind. If you put your mind on the Lord, you're not going to be doing the things that are depraved. If you put your mind on depraved things, you're not going to lose your salvation, but you will continue to do depraved things. That's why people get saved and then for years they fall away from the Lord. And then finally they realize they're so far away from the Lord that they come back to him and they get close to him again. This is something that you have done. It's not something the Lord has done. He hasn't chased you away. You have chased away from him. All right? So, uh, the fault, you'll go into the lowest levels of depravity. This was seen with the Corinthians. For example, the man referenced in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 had fallen into sexual immorality, which was, as Paul says, such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. And the church didn't do anything about it, and Paul was apoplectic. He was beside himself that that had happened. And what did, let's go there. I, I like to read this. I read it from time to time. It's such a short, such a short chapter, yes, and it's just so filled with theology that it, it's the kind of thing you can go back to again and again and again. But let's see here. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And... Such sexual immorality is, is not even named among the Gentiles. Something so horrific that the Gentiles didn't do this. And they did a lot of perverse things in the Roman Empire. I can assure you of that. Okay, But he says that a man has his father's wife. It's something explicitly outlawed in love. Moses, it's something that uh, cost Reuben his firstborn status under uh, his father because he slept with his father's concubine, etc. He says the Gentiles don't even do this, and here you're doing it. That a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up speaking to the whole congregation, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you? For indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, I have already judged as though I were present. He read, he heard, whatever, however he was conveyed this message, he knew that it was going on, and he was beside himself, and he judged the matter right then and there. This is not right. Him who, I, I, I'll start that again, has already judged as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. It, <laughs> excuse me, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you were gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan. Here it is. This is eternal salvation right here. This guy has committed the sin that Paul can't find anything even comparable to it. Last week I talked about robbing a bank. 
okay? And I also talked about David murdering and committing adultery. And I had people email me and were upset at me about that. Well, if you're doing that, you can't be saved. I don't care what you think. If, and I'm not talking about one or two people. I'm saying a stream of people were upset about that. It, I'm sorry. I will not budge from the doctrine of eternal salvation because Paul, right here, with the grossest sin that he could possibly write about, that's what he's conveying in the verses I just gave you, he says, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. We have that right there. We've got murder by David. We've got adultery by David. We've got um, it, it, theft. We've got every possible thing in the Bible that you can think of, and the Lord forgives. People that come to that conclusion do not understand one simple word, grace. They think they have to earn grace. When they come to the conclusion that you can lose your salvation, they do not understand what the word grace is. Grace is something you cannot earn. It is given to you, and it cannot be taken away, or it is not grace. It's not great. That's exactly right. You need to understand. You know what? I'm going to start a sermon here very soon on that particular issue, and there's a reason why, and I'll come to my own conclusions about it, but grace is something that you need to learn to appreciate, and you'll hear that, I don't know when, maybe in uh, uh, five or six weeks, seven weeks, I'll talk about that in the intro to the uh, particular sermon, but grace is something that you have to accept. You have to say, I don't understand it but I accept it because that is what this book teaches. And if you can't do that, then you will never come to the conclusion that you cannot lose your salvation, okay? You will always be clinging on to some of your own high moral standard, overlooking all your other faults because that person did that thing that I would never do. I'm sorry, there's no bell curve. There's no, this one is worse than this one. James says that explicitly. If you break one commandment of the law and it can be the most simple basic commandment in the law of Moses, Oh, I don't have a blue tassel, a blue cord in the tassel of my garment. I'm sorry, the law is broken. That one violation of the law breaks the whole law for you. It doesn't matter what you've done in relation to that. Oh, he killed somebody. God doesn't look at that. He says, you didn't meet the standard of the law. You are condemned. He didn't meet the standard of the law, and he's just as condemned. What do you need at that point? You need mercy. You need God's mercy. Okay, and what did God do in the giving of Jesus? He gave us his grace, and by receiving it, we get God's mercy. Okay, so let's go on. Uh, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven. He's saying, this is exactly what Paul is saying in the verse we're looking at right now. Let me read it again. It says, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. What is leaven? Sin. sin. It's a picture of sin. Your glory is not good. Do you not know that a little... I'm not trying to change the word of God. I'm just showing you the, the thought process. A little sin, okay, sends up the whole lump. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Leaven is a picture of sin. I'm not trying to change the word of God. I'm just trying to help you to understand what the typology that Paul is giving you, okay? So, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? One little bit of sin in a congregation, and the whole congregation is eventually going to be filled with that, okay? That is his point there, okay? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. There he says it again. Eternal salvation right there. You truly are are unleavened. God has forgiven you every sin, past, present, and future. 
He could not say that, that you truly are unleavened if you are not saved eternally. He could not do it, okay? So, you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. But I got to do something more. What Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, did was not sufficient. So I've got to add to that. It's all about me. I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. Therefore, let us keep the feast. That means the Passover leads into what feast? The Feast of Unleavened Bread. Therefore, let us keep the feast. It's not saying to keep the Passover. Christ is the Passover. We keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread, living our lives in the position that we are before God. We want to live out the same. In other words, we are, in God's eyes, unleavened. That's what Paul is saying right there. You truly are unleavened. So act like it. Exactly the same thought here. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. It means we can. We can do it. We will not lose our salvation, but we can do it. Guess what? And every one of us in here, I guarantee you, has lived in the flesh at some point during this week. Anybody want to argue against that? No. I don't. No way. Okay? We all live for the flesh at some point in our mind or in our actions or in our, you know, getting angry and saying things we shouldn't say or whatever. We all do that. Okay? So, it, does it matter if it's one little thing here or if it's five big things over here? Absolutely not. We are infected with sin, okay? But in God's eyes, we truly are unleavened. He's telling us now, live that way, just as he is in the book of Galatians. It's a one-for-one -one comparison. He's saying exactly the same thing again and again. You cannot lose your salvation, but you can lose your joy, and in the process, you can disgrace your creator who has made you the state that you're in. Okay, it's it just written all the way through Paul's writings and all of the rest of the other New Testament writers' writings. Okay, uh, let's see here. Therefore, let us keep the feast, the feast of unleavened bread, meaning living in a holy manner, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly didn't mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. He just gave you permission to hang around with your old friends. If they want to hang around with you as a Christian, because he just told you in advance, don't live with sin in your life. Everybody got that? He did that first. If you can live in that capacity with your old friends and they do bad things, go at it. He says, that is your prerogative. If you want to hang out and read it again so you get that, I wrote you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Who is he talking about? Anybody? He's talking about believers. That's why he brought up the example of the believer first. And he then confirms that. Yet, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world. In other words, if you have a friend that is doing inappropriate things, who is going to lead him to Christ if you don't hang around with him? Who's going to do it? He's not saying don't hang around with your friend. Your friend is gay. Well, that's fine. As long as he understands that you're a Christian and you don't believe that's appropriate, you can be his friend all day long and twice on Saturday. But you don't have to do what he's doing. You can be the example to him. But if somebody is in the congregation and they come out and they say, I'm this or that, doing this sexual sin, he says, get them out of the congregation. They claim to be a brother and they're not living for the Lord. They need to go. You're not to hang around with those people. Okay? So, I, yet I certainly did not mean with sexually immoral people of this world or with covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world because every single person on this planet falls into those categories. Everybody. 
I don't care how holy they appear to be, they fall into that category. If nothing else, they fall in as idolaters because they have not accepted Christ as Lord. Therefore, they have another idol in their life. Every person on this planet falls into that category, and he's saying, hang around with them. You are the light for them, okay? But now I have written you to not keep company with anyone named a brother. That means any person in the fellowship who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Don't fellowship with them. Don't have dinner with them. Because if you do, you're condoning what he is doing. And he says he's a brother in Christ. You need to cut that person off. I'm sorry. You're not living for the Lord as you should. I need to not be with you. Okay? That is what he's saying. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? God's going to do that anyway. They're already under judgment right? Do you not judge those who are inside, but those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourself the evil person. Get him out of the congregation, but guess what? Go back up really quickly to what it says in verse 5. Remember it. Deliver such one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, which is what's going to happen if he's living in sin. Doesn't matter what type of sin, un unrepentant sin, he is going to have his flesh destroyed, but that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Eternal salvation. If you can lose your salvation, as all of these people and all of these denominations and, and uh, you know, teachings teach, then how do you answer that particular set of verses right there? When Paul says, this is as bad as it gets. How can you answer that? How can you say that the Lord, and once again, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit as a deposit, as a guarantee. How many theological errors are in that if you say that you can lose your salvation? You can say that God has made a mistake, that God doesn't know the end from the beginning, that God is incompetent, that God is a liar, that God's guarantee is no good. Go on down the line. All of the things that you have to actually profess if you say that you can lose your salvation. It's, I'm sorry for people like that, that believe that they, that God's grace is not grace, because that's what it is. It is grace. It is unmerited favor. It is given, and it is not taken away. All right? So, we'll go on. Let's see here. We've got, um, uh, yeah, what is very easy to do when one, I've already read that. Let me go down a little. Paul warns them of this. Freedom in Christ is not license to sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Rather, he gives them a contrast to hold on to by saying, but through love, serve one another. The word serve carries stress in this clause. As freedmen, they were not to serve the flesh. He's making a complete contrast between the two. Don't serve the flesh, serve one another. Okay? They were to, uh, yes, as freedmen, they were not to serve the flesh, but rather they were to take on another form of servitude. They were to serve one another. Paul will explain the basis for this in his words to come. But for now, we must consider the contrast which has been presented. Christians are freed from the constraints of the law. We are freed from it. The law of Moses was given to one group of people, only one group of people in all of human history, and I can tell you that it wasn't you, unless you are a Jew. That's right. Little poet there, okay? Little poetry for you, but that is it. If you were not Jewish, then you were not a group of the people, or you were not a part of the group of people that received the law of Moses. It was only for them. It was only to be a 
educational tool for the people of the world to understand what they really need. Not more law. They need grace. That is what the basic premise of the law is. There's a lot more to it, but that's the basic premise is that the law condemns and we need God's grace. Okay? And it's funny. Abraham understood that and he received God's grace way before the time of the law. And then the law, time of the law is introduced and they could not get it all the way through that time of the law. And today people are still not getting it. They, they don't get it. Abraham was given as the example. The promise is coming through him. And we still want to defer back to the law. It doesn't make any sense, but that's because we want to be in charge. We want to be the one in control, and we want to be able to show God how good we are, when in fact we're not good at all. There's nothing in us that's any good at all, and that's why we need God's grace. They are freed from sin's penalty, but they are obligated to free freedom's standards and expectations. This may sound contradictory, but it clearly shows that with Christ's freedom comes such expectations and responsibilities. It does not mean that you're going to lose your salvation. It does not mean that you're going to be imputed sin, but it does mean that you will lose your joy, that you will destroy your flesh, that you will destroy your testimony, and you will harm your relationship with your creator. But none of those other things are going to happen, okay? And that's what Paul makes explicit again and again and again and again. Okay, life application. In Christ, we are given great freedoms, but with this also comes great responsibility. If we are to be faithful to this calling, we should continually talk to the Lord, asking for his guidance and assistance in our walk. I said this earlier before we even got into our verses today. If you want to be close to the Lord, if you want to be close to the Spirit, you just want to be with him all day long, talking to him. Lord, I can't believe what I just did. I can't believe how I offended that person at Publix, all right? I need you to just help me. And you're, you're letting him know that you're aware that he's there with you. And it doesn't matter if everybody around you sees you talking to yourself and they think you're crazy. That's irrelevant because today people talk to themselves and they got something in their ear and they're all crazy anyway. So, you know, talk to the Lord. I, I you know, I, I'm so embarrassed sometimes. I shouldn't be, but they don't know what I'm talking about. But I'll be out there working behind them all in the morning and I'll, or feeding the birds, you know, the old food from the dumpster from the day before or something. And I'll just be talking to the Lord, you know, and somebody will be, walk up and I don't know they're there and here I'm talking. And they must think I'm absolutely out of my mind. And I'm embarrassed about that, but not of what I'm talking about. It's just the fact that they think I'm nuts, which, well, maybe I am. Okay, yeah. I, 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 I'm sorry. We don't wear shoes here. We don't wear shoes here. Okay, um, so anyway, uh, that's how you get close to the Lord. Talk to him. Okay, talk to him. Um, on our own, we are prone to wander. But by keeping close to him and to his word, we will be in a much better position to handle the trials and temptations which are sure to come our way. Okay, and you can't say I'm immune to this because I know that when you're driving down the road and somebody cuts you off, you're going to grit your teeth and say something you shouldn't or maybe put up a finger you shouldn't have put up. We're all prone to this because we all have different limitations. Some of us can take pressure for weeks and never get angry and all of a sudden, it becomes too much and you snap. Does this happen to anybody else or am I the only one here? Okay, I see a little, okay, it's only me. She's okay, we got Miss Perfection over here. Um, uh, you know, I, I won't say who it is, but somebody that I, I, I do something with every week here. I, one of the most, one of the most patient, calm people I've ever known in my life. And I don't think I'd ever seen him get angry in about 12 years, maybe it was 10 years at the time. Never, never got angry over anything. 
and we were out doing our mission work one day, and uh, this little kid was just was just egging egging this guy on, and he actually got mad at him. And I thought, oh, he actually gets mad at people. And then one other time, I was having lunch with him after mission work, and we're at uh, at uh, IHOP, and there was this. I'm telling you, there's his family, and they had a kid over there. And I won't say what this person said to me, but I. <laughs> Oh, wow. So, see, we all have our limitations. Even the most calm, gentle spirit that you know on the face of the planet has limitations. And when we meet our limitations, we err. That's natural, and the Lord knows it's going to happen. He's not here to beat us up over those things. He's there to be there for us and to help us to get through those things if we are already communicating with him. If we're not, you got to start right then, and you've got to go back through all the things that you've done and cleanse yourself out and, you know, get right with the Lord. Don't do that. Just be in contact with him all day long, and you will be so much better off. Okay, that's just the way we should be. Um, 514, Jim. Wait, wait, wait. Go ahead, Bert. What? We don't cleanse ourselves. No, we don't. We do not cleanse ourselves. Okay, maybe in the shower, and that's only really temporary, okay? But I got to tell you, you're right. We don't cleanse ourselves at all. It all comes from the work of the Lord. We need to talk to him, and he is the one that purifies us, and he cleanses us. That is absolutely right. Okay, go ahead. 514. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't this one of the most abused verses mm-hmm. lately? If you've been reading this, you know, I, I, I'll i say it in the Prophecy Update this Sunday, so you can skip through the one little part that I mentioned, unless I cut it out anyway, but uh, focus on the family, okay? Focus on the family is decided that they are endorsing you to get your vaccine, and guess what verse they use to justify that? Right, so you know now you know you can sleep through that ten seconds of the prophecy update. But yeah, they they they're they're they've bought the the uh, whatever you call it. They've they've drank the Kool Aid absolutely, and now they're saying using that verse completely out of context in order to tell you or to shame you into doing this thing. Okay, whatever. That's focused on the family, and you know I never really liked that show anyway. Now I'll tell you something about focus on the family and, and shows like that. Okay, here's my thought on it. If you get these specialists on there and they start talking about, you know, this particular issue, how to raise your child this way, all right, and then you turn on another one of those same type of shows, and they'll say, this is the biblical way to do this, and then you turn on another one of the shows, and they will come to a completely, and I'm not kidding, a completely opposite conclusion of how to do those things, okay? What you need to do is you need to know this, inside and out. And you need to apply it properly. And when they don't know it, they're just, you know, they're trained in child care. And they pull a verse out that sounds good and they apply that to their... It doesn't mean that that verse is appropriate for that particular situation. You have to know the context of what that verse is and you need to apply it in that context. And I'm not kidding. I So many times I've heard them on shows like that that I don't bother with them anymore. I, I don't want to listen to somebody like that tell me how to raise my kids. I want to read the word and I want... You know, nobody gave us a manual about life in general, apart from the Bible, okay? We're all going to make our mistakes on the, on the way, but as long as we know this word and we keep reading it, our marriage will get better, our walk with the Lord will be strong, our raising of our children will get better. All of those things will come into a better focus, but it's based on the word, okay? I, I'm, I'm certain of that. You know, going to psychologists and psychiatrists may be necessary at times. I don't know. But I can tell you that if you know the word and you put the Lord first, your life will be much, much better in all ways. 
Okay. Anyway, did you read that? Yes, you did. I did. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. When, and I'm not saying focus on the family is bad or any of those shows. I just don't like them myself. That, okay, so I'm not trying to tell you not to listen to them or whatever. But they sure bit the cool, or uh, drank the Kool-Aid on that particular issue. Anyway, when Jesus was asked what the most important commandment is, he responded, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, I kind of, that's... I don't know if I copied that. Oh, yeah, and your neighbor is yourself. I kind of paraphrase that here, I think, or something. I don't know. I may have left off a word when I typed it. But um, before you um, uh, look down at your notes or anything, where is that found? That pr oh, okay. No, it's not. No, I'm talking about in the Old Testament. What is he citing? Not Leviticus. Deuteronomy. 6-4, exactly. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall. And then he goes and explains it. That's correct. Deuteronomy 6-4. The what? From the David sermons, he spoke about how Jesus uses Deuteronomy whenever he quotes the Old Testament. That's exactly right. He uses Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy That's is it. That's right. Good job. She paid attention in the sermon. Yes. Leviticus, yes. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against you. shall love your neighbors yourself. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is correct. That is. And I wasn't talking about that. I was talking about the hero Israel. But you're right. It is. Leviticus 18 is correct for this particular precept from Paul. But anyway, and then it's it's repeated. But Deuteronomy is what Jesus will cite. He goes to Deuteronomy and... Here we go for the second time. Absolutely. You drill it in your head a second yeah. time. Yeah, and even in Deuteronomy, which I'll say in this week's sermon, not only is he repeating things from elsewhere in the law, but he also repeats himself within Deuteronomy. But when he does, you'll see some interesting parallels. We'll see one this weekend. So you want to pay attention because what sounds like he's saying in exactly the same thing, he's not. Well, okay. This new generation in Deuteronomy hadn't heard this before. That's right. That's right. So he, that's why he's repeating the law and he's expanding on it. Okay, um, let's see here now. Um, Luke ten twenty seven is what I just read you. Paul's words now echo that sentiment, but deal with the issue at hand, which is relations with one's neighbor. Therefore, he cites that part as pertinent to the situation with which the Galatians were facing. He's not trying to elevate this above anything else, but he's saying this is summed up in here because this is the problem that the Galatians are facing. That's why he chose that part of that particular precept. If one is to serve in love, which he just said in the previous verse, then everything else will fall into its proper place. We do not serve the law. The law is fulfilled in Christ. We serve rather one another in love. This is what is given to bind us together and to keep us from the very thing which had been forced upon them by the Judaizers. These false teachers wanted to control. They did not want to serve. They wanted deeds of the flesh, not love of the heart. These things are contrary to what is expected of saved believers. Okay, they're contrary because Christ fulfilled the law. That's not our job. Our job before the Lord isn't to go back and redo what Jesus Christ has done. Our job is to take what Jesus Christ has done and work it out in our relationship with God, in our relationship with others, etc. That is what we are to do. Not to go redo something that he's already done. 
all right? They wanted deeds of the flesh, not love of the heart. These things are contrary to what is expected of saved believers in Christ. Paul expands on this thought of this verse in Romans 13, 8 through 10. There he goes from the general proposition of this verse to the accompany, uh, I'm sorry, the accomplishment of the action. Here's what he says in Romans 13. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, <coughs> excuse me, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to do those things. You're not going to bring harm to other people in any of those ways. If you love your neighbor, we'll go back and read them again. You will not commit adultery because that's harming your neighbor. You will not murder because that is harming your neighbor. You will not steal because your neighbor is the one that made that money or that earned that, you know, through digging it out of the ground and building it or cutting it down and shaping it into a, a house or whatever. You're not to steal from that person, okay? And talking about theft, I brought this up in both uh, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, and I'll say it right now. Governments are here to take care of their people. That is their job, and they rightly tax because of that. But there is a point when governments no longer are doing the job of the people, and what they do becomes theft. Everybody got that? Yep. There is a point where that happens. We passed that point in the United States of America eons ago. They, what they are doing now is theft of the population. And if you want to see in the next hundred days how things are going to change in this nation, we're going to be there. Okay? You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. If you lie about your neighbor, you are harming your neighbor. You shall not covet. In coveting, coveting leads Coveting is the sin of the mind. When you covet, nobody knows. How can it be wrong? Only God knows, and yet it is wrong because in coveting, it leads to any of those other infractions or many other infractions because once your mind is set on doing something wrong, it's going to do that wrong thing. So you shall not covet. That harms your neighbor. And if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. If you love, you're not going to harm, and if you're not going to harm, then you don't need to worry about the law because there's nothing that you're going to do which is going to be harmful and violating the law. But because we do these things, thank God for the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Life application. If one is not acting in love, then it is not of God. Anyone can make an offering to a church, but unless there is love behind the offering, it's a vain and self-serving gift. The same holds true with any action between us and God and us and our fellow man. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. It's confusing. We have to know at what point do we say this is unloving or this is righteous anger, okay? Because there are things that are happening in the world right now that we do not like. It's been happening all throughout human history. I'm just using because this is our referent right now is the time we're living in. There are things that are happening in this world that we do not like, okay? And we can be angry about that. We can be upset about that, and we can fight against it. There's nothing wrong with that because it, 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 you're not harming anybody in that. But there is a point where our not liking something is no longer righteous indignation, and it turns into an unloving act. 
And once again, we don't always know that fine line. God does. God knows when we are doing something from the heart and when we're doing something not from the heart. Okay? And all we can do is our best in this life. But there is no gray with God. There's none. It is black and it is white. And everything will be judged that way. He's not going to judge you unfairly in any way, shape, or form. But there is nothing gray with God. Now, Burke's shirt today is very gray. But that's you're not going to be judged either way about your shirt. Okay, Burke? Just so you know. Okay, yes. 515. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, or you will dis be destroyed by each other. That's very close. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I don't know which the uh, Greek more accurately reads. And yeah, it's devour. Okay, I'll be reading that in a second. Anyway, um, the reason why he's not here, you were asking about him a minute ago, is he's doing a project, and he, he doesn't have time for Bible today. This is... Yeah. I know. Oh, okay. Yeah. Anyway, that's why he's in the back. He's working okay. back there. Yeah. Okay. I just saw you asking. And okay. No, no, he's fine. Okay. Um, Paul now uses metaphors to show the inevitable result of divisions and strife. He says that if you bite and devour one another, it can only lead to serious harm. The idea here is in contrast to the loving serving of the previous two verses. People who stab one another over minor theological issues might be compared to those who bite at one another. Okay, and that is true. There are certain things that we should be dogmatic about. There are certain things that we should hold the line about. And there are certain things that we don't know one way or another, maybe, or, you know, it's not worth fighting over. Okay, and... I don't want to say that it's not important. Doctrine is important, but there are certain things that we shouldn't just bite each other over. Okay, I'll give you an example. Okay, there is no doubt in my mind, zero, that we are doing pre-tribulation rapture. Okay, that's, that's what Christ is going to be doing. When he calls us home, it's going to be before the tribulation. Okay, and some people don't understand that. And you can show them the verses in the Bible, and then they'll go and take all kinds of verses out of context and see, no, that's incorrect, all right? There's a point where it's just not worth arguing over that anymore, okay? I know that I'm right. I have stated my case. I've given them the verses in context, and I've told them why their verses are taken out of context. I'm not going to sit there and fight with people over that nonsense, okay? And, and there's another precept that Paul gives us, I think it's to Timothy, he says, warn a divisive man once, warn them a second time, and then have nothing to do with them. Okay? It, it, backbiting each other over divisive little things doesn't serve anybody any good, and all it does is it harms everybody. It harms everybody in the process. That's why I'm trying to say doctrine does matter. I'm not trying to say it doesn't matter, but you just have to know when to say this is not worth fighting this battle. Okay? If somebody just doesn't get it, and they don't want to see it, they are not going to see it, okay? That's, uh, what is it, uh, what's the uh, phrase that we use? Um, uh, I use it all the time on Sunday, um, presupposition, but um, cognitive dissonance. That's what I'm thinking of, cognitive dissonance. My mind is set, I'm not going to change one way or another, and that is a condition that people have, and until they're willing to say, I could be wrong, and you can see clearly that they're wrong, it's not going to do any good arguing with them. Okay, um, let's see here. The word translated as bite gives the idea of serious harm. That of devour gives the idea of complete ruination, 
where even no remains are left behind. Think of Jezebel. All that was left was her skull and her hands, okay? Yeah, there you go. To avoid these harmful battles among the brethren, Paul admonished... Mom's laughing over there. To uh, avoid these harmful battles among the brethren, Paul admonishes them to beware lest you be consumed by one another. You're just going to devour each other and there's going to be nothing left. Yeah, just as wild animals bite and devour, they continue to do so until there is nothing left. At this point, they move on to find their next prey. I'll tell you a great example, okay? There is a point where we can cause so much harm to ourselves in arguing. It was a great... Somebody posted a, a video. I can't remember who it was. Might have been Ivana. Anyway, somebody posted a video and it had a lion. No, 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 I'm sorry, it wasn't. It had... Uh, it was in Africa, and there were two of those. Uh, they look like deers. They've got the horns that go around, and you know what I'm talking about, ibex or whatever they are, and they were fighting each other. They're fighting each other. These are the same species, okay, and they're fighting each other. Now, obviously, they're in a rut, and that's what animals do when they're in a rut, but they were fighting each other, and you can see this right on the video. Over there, the bushes are moving, and here comes a lion. He comes right out in the open, out of the bushes. They're fighting each other, and the lion goes and grabs one of them and kills it, and the other one ran away. And the point being that was, this is what happens when Christians fight and devour one another. We're so busy destroying ourselves that the enemy comes in and takes over and destroys us. So it was a wonderful object lesson right from nature. And I felt bad for the deer, but hey, lions have to eat too, so there you go. Um, anyway, um, and that that's, it goes exactly along with that. Just as wild animals bite and devour, they continue to do so until nothing is left. At this point, they move on to their next prey. If the Galatians cannot serve in love, they will inevitably come to a point where they are completely devoured. The congregation will be destroyed and the joy of Christ will no longer even be proclaimed. All of this starts with the first bite. A little theological quibbling over disputable matters generally explodes into complete ruin because pride steps in and refuses to relent. And we see this all the time. People want to start an argument with something. I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you. Just let it go. Once you've told your case, let it go. Okay, let them think it through. And if they want to be wrong, people are allowed to be as wrong as they want. That's one thing that... It's not going to change in this world, and we have complete freedom to be wrong if we want to be. Give them the truth, show them where they're wrong, and then let it go. Okay, uh, let's see here. And how common this has become, especially on social media, where people don't even have to face one another. It has become the standard of many to simply shoot out arrogant and harmful words in order to show how theologically adept they are. And this usually occurs by those who actually know very little or who argue over matters they haven't fully thought through. Life application, what value is there in tearing apart another person who has devoted their time to carefully analyzing and then preparing a commentary on a passage of scripture? If you disagree on a point of doctrine, is it truly necessary to attack them over it? Instead, a simple comment about your own position should suffice to show what you believe. And then from there, if you disagree, just disagree. Okay, 516. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Okay, completely different. So I then say, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It says the same thing, sinful nature, but it's completely different written. Just like a little leaven 
indicates sin. Okay, same thing here. The flesh indicates the sin nature. Okay, let's see here. 516. As a rule of guidance and practical application based on verses 13 through 15, Paul now says, I say then. In order for the Christian to close the door to living in the flesh and rather to open the door of serving in love, he provides the following advice, which is that we are to walk in the Spirit. Okay, walking in the Bible always signifies what? The conduct of one's life. Right, okay, there you go. Walking, whatever type of walking. If you're walking in the flesh, that's how you're conducting your life. If you're walking in the Spirit, flesh. what? If you're walking in the flesh, you're... Yeah. yeah it's like, it's your lifestyle. Isn't it? That's your lifestyle. That's exact. It's the conduct of your life. That's right. Okay, some translations more rightly say by the Spirit instead of walking in the Spirit. Either way, the New Living Translation gives an adequate and understandable paraphrase of Paul's intent with the words, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. That's a paraphrase. You know, sometimes you get a, a paraphrase in a, a Bible that has a lot of paraphrasing in it, and it actually is kind of nice to read. I'm not talking about abusing the word. I'm saying they say this is a paraphrase. They don't say this is a translation. And if they do that, they're not there to deceive you. They're telling you that this is a paraphrase. Okay, and then you get versions and translations that say this is a translation of the Bible, and what do they do? They paraphrase it, okay, when they're saying it's a translation. Now, I'll give you an example, okay, because we're talking about um, devouring one another in the last verse. The sword in the Bible, you're going to kill somebody, slay somebody with the sword, okay? Does it say that in the Hebrew, Rhoda? Cherev, right? But what is it with, with the edge of the sword? How does it say it in the Hebrew? The what? Well, it says it with the mouth of the sword. Okay? And so we're paraphrasing it. Le pi right? So, yeah. So it's, she said, oh, yeah, it's the mouth. And it's showing you that it's a devouring instrument. So when we say slay with the edge of the sword, that's actually a paraphrase. It's not really a, a, a literal translation, right? Isn't I'm asking you. Yeah, there you go. And so, because she's the one that speaks Hebrew. So she knows that. It's the mouth of the sword. And so, you, you know, don't get down on people that read a paraphrase because you're reading a paraphrase in a lot of areas of the Bible, which is actually not saying what the Hebrew says. But for your sake, they think they're doing you a favor by paraphrasing it. Okay? But if you start out reading the Bible, and it says all the way through the Bible that you are going to be destroyed by the mouth of the sword, you will know exactly what it means as soon as you start reading it, and you're going to read that all the way through the Bible. You're not harming anything. But once again, the new literal, the new living, they call it a translation, the new living translation, and then they paraphrase it, okay? But if they say we're paraphrasing these verses, then there's nothing wrong with it. The problem with translations is when somebody says, I'm doing something, and this is a literal translation, and it's not, okay? Young's is very good. If people want to know the most, the most, close to the original Hebrew and Greek that you're going to find, it's going to be Young's literal translation. It's wonderful, but it's very hard to read because it's stuffy. It's, you know, it's, it's just hard to read. But once you get used to it, you will enjoy it. Young's literal translation. Now, somebody told me, I can't remember who said this. They said that they are working on a actually very, very, very literal translation right now that will be out soon. I can't remember who said this to me, but they said it's supposed to be really, and I'll be interested to see how literal it is because there are things that you just can't translate literally and understand them. 
there are times where words have to be introduced, okay? And so, I, I, this is the kind of thing I like. You can tell, and I'm sorry to get off on that, that uh, little uh, sidetrack, but I just love to go through different translations and see how they word things. Anyway, okay, so we've got the paraphrase. We are lived by the Spirit as a rule for guidance and action within our lives. The term walk is a customary metaphor that Paul uses. It is not to be taken literally, but as a means of expressing a life of constant and unwavering conduct, okay? When he says walk in the Spirit. When he says walk in the flesh, he's not saying to be constant and unwavering there. He's saying that that's how you are living, okay? But to walk is how you conduct your life, okay? If you're walking in the Spirit, do it constantly and unwavering in that capacity. Our walk or our constant and habitual practice is to live by the Spirit. In so doing, we shall, Paul's words here, we shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. This is not referring to the simple desires of the physical nature, of which all of us continue to live while we live in our earthly bodies. We all have to eat. We all have to do things, and that's not what Paul is speaking about. Rather, it refers to the desire, this is Vincent's word studies, the desire which is peculiar to human nature without the divine spirit. And that's exactly right. Anything that you're doing in your life without the divine spirit is living according to the flesh. And that's why you want to walk by the spirit. And how do you do that? Once again, you know your Bible first, read the Bible because the spirit gave us the Bible. And then from there, you want to talk to the Lord. You want to meditate on the word while you're working. You want to think about what you read and maybe flip to a completely different book of the Bible when you're reading and read that. And you're going to see that it matches up. The whole Bible is a unified whole, so you're not going to find a contradictory message anywhere in there, but you will learn how to, you know, weave things together in the Bible properly if you know all of the Bible. But if you have read it 10 times, you know, Genesis through Revelation, that's great, but it's very hard to make connections doing things that way. So after you've read the Bible a few times, break it up and read this book and then this book and then break it up a little bit and you will see, oh, I remember that now. Something that you had forgotten by the time you get to Revelation that was in the book of Job. Now you're reading Genesis and Job and then Revelation and you're, I, I see how it goes. So that's a wonderful thing to do. Live by the Spirit, pursue the Word, talk to the Lord all the time. When we live by the Spirit, this lust of the flesh can have no power over us. This is extremely well explained by Charles Ellicott. His words here, the flesh is known by a long catalog of sins, the spirit by a like catalog of Christian graces, the mere mention of which is enough to show that the law has no power over them. Those who belong to Christ have got rid of the flesh with all of its impulses by their union with the crucified Savior. That is true actually I'm sorry, it's true positionally in Christ, but now we need to make it true actually by living the way that God has deemed us, okay? So, Ellicott's words concerning a long catalog of sins is rich in significance. If the law had not been given, those things which were mandated could not be considered sinful when done. For example, if there was no law that said you cannot eat pork, then there could be no penalty for eating pork. But as soon as the law was given, eating pork became a cataloged sin. The same is true with coveting, wearing clothes of two different materials, working on a Saturday, which is the Sabbath, okay, or any other of the 600 plus laws which the law of Moses prescribed. Each mandate only increased the knowledge of sin and increased violations when they occurred. 
Everybody see that? That's why the law was given, to show us how utterly sinful sin is to God. One sin violates the whole law. It's broken the whole law. I've got all of these sins. Look at how bad we are before God. And that's not the point that God is trying to show us, that you're bad and you're going to be condemned because of it. He's showing us that you're bad, and I want to correct that by giving my son. There's good in it. It just, it seems like, oh, why is he doing this? He's just showing us, he's holding it over us like a carrot that we can't reach. That's not what he's doing. He's given us Israel under the law as a lesson so that we can see the marvel of what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. And when Israel realizes that someday, and I'm talking about the nation as a whole, what is the reaction going to be? Anybody? Well, they're going to turn to Christ, but what is their reaction going to be? Book of Zechariah. Let me see if I can find this. I think it's Zechariah. What's that? Weeping over it. Absolutely weeping over it. Let me see if I can find this. It might be uh, 12. Yeah, okay, there. Yeah, exactly. Okay, 10. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. It's already there waiting for them. All they have to do is receive it. Okay, and when they do, they will receive it. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. They haven't done this yet. It's coming. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day, there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem. It's not going to be a party on that day. Not at first. It's going to be mourning when the entire nation realizes that they have missed Christ for 2,000 years. Plus, great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning at Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves. And it goes on. They're all going to be mourning. And then it gets into chapter 13, the beauty of what God's going to do. In that day, a fountain shall be open for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. It's coming soon, but it's not there yet. And the point of the law was to get them to this state. And that's why when you see people come to Christ, what do you see them do quite often? They break down in tears. Okay? I know one guy that met the Lord and when he did, he spent the next three months in church every Sunday morning crying. Okay? I won't give his name. Uh, anyway. Um, yeah, I, I just remember that. I just I remember it like it was yesterday. However, by receiving Christ who fulfilled the law, did I read that? Yes, the law for us, after all of those sins and all the things that we've done wrong, by receiving Christ who fulfilled the law for us, we are freed from the penalty of those laws because the law is annulled in Christ. Those sins can have no power over us when we walk by the Spirit. As always, and listen, as I said, we are positionally already in Christ. We are positionally already living by the Spirit. That's why Paul said, act as you truly are. You truly are unleavened, now act like it. Once again, you have to make a distinction between your position in Christ and your conduct before Christ. All right. You want your conduct to be aligned with your position because the position is already there if you have accepted Christ. So when I say these things, I want you to understand what I'm saying. All right. Those sins can have no power over us when we walk by the Spirit. They can have no power over you at all, ever, in Christ. But they can have power over you as you don't walk by the Spirit in your earthly walk. Everybody see the difference? In Christ, they are done. But in your presence of the Lord, they will harm you and they will harm your relationship with the Lord. 
as always, this is the great contrast that Paul highlights. It is also the reason why he adamantly asks us to not fall back on deeds of the law for our righteousness. When we do so, we only reapply that lengthy catalog of sins to our lives, and we end in a life of the flesh, not guided by the Spirit. Once again, you're not going to be imputed those sins, but God is going to judge you according to them in your walk with the Lord. No rewards for you, buddy, because you didn't live by the grace of God in Christ. Instead, you tried to re-earn my favor, what he's already earned for you, okay? No rewards for you. Life application, and we might have time for one more. Let me see, do we have time for one more? Uh, yeah, we'll do one more after this. Life application, if you have been reading these verses of Paul and thinking, yes, but I know that I need to just not eat pork. The rest of the law is okay to ignore, but no pork chops. Then you have still failed to grasp what Christ has done for you. It is all or it is nothing. Stop putting deeds of the law back into your life. Be freed from it once and for all and live by the Spirit and not by the flesh. Okay? 517 and we'll be done. We've got a couple minutes. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. Okay. Um, that, it's almost the same here, but instead of saying sinful nature, they say flesh. So I'm not going to read it again, just to make sure we can finish in time. Um, Paul no, now explains the necessary reason why we should walk in the Spirit. As he stated in the previous verse, okay, it is because there is, as it were, a war between the two. They can never be at harmony with one another because they are contrary, as Paul says, they are contrary one to another. This does not mean nor does Paul imply that the physical world, including our flesh, is evil. Rather, it becomes the seat of evil through our contrary carnal walk. Everything that God created, he created good. Everything. It is what we do with it that makes it bad. That's why I said I closed up a sermon uh, after uh, communion one or two weeks ago. I said, I was just talking to the Lord. I do that at, you know, in my prayer at the end of the service. And I said, Lord... You have given us such a beautiful world, and we have got such a terrible world to live in. It's not him that gave us the terrible world. It's what we have done with it. He's given us everything beautiful, everything wonderful, everything glorious, and we have turned it into a vile den of wickedness. I was listening to um, something earlier. Oh, I was listening to YouTube, and I turned on a song, and Johnny Cash, one of his uh, songs, and... and uh, after that, there was a commercial, and it was so gross. It was obviously a commercial for a TV show. It was so vile, I can't tell you what they said. And it was one of those family shows. <laughs> Father, wife, talking about the daughter and her relationship with somebody. It was so vile, I, and I thought, I can't believe that they're saying this right here. And, I, you know, I posted on Facebook a day ago that here we have there, there is no, somebody said, I, I just don't have laughter in my life anymore. And I emailed back to her, and after I emailed her, I took what I emailed and I put it on Facebook. I think I'll read it this weekend so people can get it. But um, she said, I don't have any laughter in my life. And I said, there is no laughter. We used to have the Three Stooges, and we'd laugh about that. They don't have anything like that anymore. There's nothing to laugh about on TV unless it's vile, okay? But we can have joy without laughter. You can be in prison and have joy. You can have cancer and have joy. 
You might not be laughing about it, but you can have joy. And that's the beauty of knowing Jesus Christ, because without that, all we got is that disgusting commercial that I listened to that I can't even tell a group of people about. It was that bad. All right. Um, I'll read that again. He doesn't imply that the physical world, including our flesh, is evil. Rather, it becomes the seed of evil through our contrary carnal walk. God created matter and declared it good. However, our natural inclinations since the fall have worked against what is good and have used the physical creation for evil purposes. In this, Paul explains that the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. He further explains this in Romans 8. I'm going to try to get this done. If I can't, that'll be all right, but we'll try to get this, this verse done so today. Very good. That was the sixth day. Everything was very good. Tov me'od. Wonderful stuff. Um, Romans 8 and then verses 6 through 8. I'm going to read it quick. I'm not going to talk a lot. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, and for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot, that's right, cannot please God. They cannot. As noted there, it is the mind of the flesh, the carnal mind, which Paul is referring to. Only in Christ can there be a true break from this. That's the only way it's ever going to happen. In Romans 7, Paul sets up the dilemma with the words of Romans 7, 15 through 19. He says, for what am I doing? For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. As the two are contrary to one another, we find ourselves in a losing war if we walk in the flesh. We will not win the war. It is impossible. Only through reliance on Christ can we win and find the true victory. By faith in him, we receive the Spirit. By continued faith in him, we walk in the Spirit. The point of Paul's words is to show that by falling back on deeds of the law, we are not walking in the Spirit. Everybody got that? Hebrew Roots Movement 101. You are under the law. You are not walking in the Spirit. You are at enmity with God. You cannot please God when you're trying to do what Christ has already done on your behalf. You cannot please God. All right? So, the Spirit only guides those who trust in Christ, not in deeds. As this is so, those who walk in the flesh, meaning deeds of the law, cannot be pleasing to God. They are walking contrary to his purposes. Life application and we will be done. Oh, here it is. If you were following the Hebrew Roots Movement or some other congregation, Seventh-day Adventist, or anybody that's reinserting the law, okay, which says you should be following precepts of the law of Moses, you are not pleasing to God. You have been duped by the devil. Trust in God, rest in Christ, and walk in the Spirit. This is what God would ask you to do. No, there is no contradiction in saying I'm not under law,
but I am also not to be walking in the flesh. There's no contradiction in that at all. That's what Paul says, and that's what we, how we are to live out our lives. 100%. Anybody that says otherwise, you need to not listen to that person. Okay? Make sure that you understand that you can only be pleasing to God by walking in the flesh, not observing deeds of the law. What's that? Walking in the spirit. What? Only way you can please him is walking in the spirit. I had two people saying something at the same time, so I couldn't I couldn't process. Oh, okay. There you go. You said flesh and you meant spirit. Oh, walk in the spirit. Yeah, you can't be pleasing to God if you're walking in the flesh. That's correct. Okay, thank you for that. And next week we'll get to whatever Jim said. He said the next verse explains it all. Here we go. We gotta close just in time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come together and meet and to uh, share in your word what a wonderful word it is, how precious it is, and help us to handle it rightly and to and more than anything, to just talk to you, talk to you with our lives in, a, in our day as the sun rises, to thank you for the sunrise. And when we stub our toe, to uh, just thank you for the stub toe because we learned something from it, hopefully. Whatever it is, just help us to be in, in tune with you throughout the day and walking in the Spirit and have that close fellowship that we need to have. And Lord, we certainly are very, very thankful for the past three, four, five weeks, however long it's been, that Sergio and Rhoda have been here. And they're going to be missed when they leave here in another day. So we would ask that you would bless them as they travel to see other people. And then when they get back on an airplane and back over to the land of lockdown, we pray that they'll be okay and happy and content with each other as they're locked in their little rooms and we're out at the beach having fun. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all the goodness that you've blessed us with, how good you are to us. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Oh. I'm just trying to get them to change their mind. That's all. I'm just trying, trying my best. Let me back this up, and we gotta say goodbye to the folks online. Yeah. Very subtle approach.